You're not using any of that. <laughs> City image. now listening to city image this is andy young nassau county this is varlene the wildthorn berry and we have a very special guest host with us and he's going to now introduce his illustrious self my name is uh clay williams aka donnell sterling welcome welcome clay welcome clay all right glad so to be here. Um, glad to be here we got a really great uh, interview for y'all, and it is specifically coronavirus related because you haven't heard enough about coronavirus yet, but you want to stick around for this interview. We have Zach Martin from Trellis. Uh, he has dropped a lot of wisdom on us on how we can be responding to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but before that, uh, V, we want to know in lieu of coronavirus, you are a nurse. Please just like give us an update. Tell us what's going on. Your boots on the ground. Yeah. So it's really hot out here in these streets. Um, it's kind of like, a, you know, like a, it's a juggling board because you need your staff and you need to like take care of these patients. But a lot of your staff is like getting sick. So that's pretty much, I think, a lot of what's happening in the hospitals. It's really hard. And then also, like what Cuomo has talked about, the ventilators. A lot of people are, uh, from what I understand, in the general hospitals, a lot of the people are crashing pr uh, pretty quick. And so they need to be intubated right away. Wow. And so um, from what I'm hearing as well, it's once a person gets intubated, it's very hard for them. So that means that a person is on a breathing tube for them, uh, a breathing tube, and the machine is breathing for them. And so um, with COVID, it's, it's getting hard for people to actually get off that breathing machine and um, able to breathe on their own. And so that's been one of the hardest things to like hear about. Um, yes, there's been a lot of fatalities. Um, it is hitting pretty home. You know, I'm on a couple of, uh, I'm on a couple of chats where someone's always talking about, they have someone who has experienced COVID, who has COVID, who was positive with COVID or who has passed with COVID. So it is hitting home. Um, but you know, I remain hopeful. You know, one of the things that I'm always on is look, there are people been dying every day. You know, COVID is just making it, making people aware that people have been dying every day. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so um, just like we're going to be talking about in this conversation, is it bringing up what already has been going on, the systemic 
breakdowns that don't ca- that cause people to have lack of resources when they're really needed. And so I think that this is also, you know, even though COVID is, you know, uh, very, it's like a, it, it has brought a lot of grief, but I also feel like it's bringing a lot of awareness to things what, that are happening on a daily basis in a lot of people's lives. Mm. Um, and like we're going to hear in the conversation that we had, um, a lot of people have been dealing with this on a, on, on, on a daily, you feel me? Mm. Mama got shot, daddy's on crack, you know, mama's got diabetes, died the other day, you know? So a lot of this thing, a lot of what COVID is doing is just bringing awareness to our humanity and our vulnerability. I just appreciate the fact that COVID is bringing to the awareness of the frailty of men and what we can do as humanity to make things better. Mm, mm. That's a good word. That's a good word. Well, we're praying for you, V. Please be praying for Varlene. Be praying for all of our healthcare workers. They're on the front lines right now. Um, So we hope y'all are staying healthy. We are excited for this interview. Um, Zach is a part of an organization called Trellis that does um, organizing, activism, connecting faith communities to real things that are happening in our city that we need to be in the mix with. And so we're really excited for this interview. Uh, We hope y'all are staying healthy and stay tuned. This is City Image. All right, welcome, welcome. Uh, we are here with Zach Martin, the director of Trellis. Um, we are excited to have Zach on. As you all know, we are in the midst of a global uh, pandemic, and New York City has been called, uh, in many ways, an epicenter of this pandemic. Um, and as the church, uh, we are called to respond. Um, and so I brought Zach on. Um, we're excited to have Zach on. Every time I've uh, ran into Zach or just heard stuff from Zach, see Zach on social media, he seems to have a really good idea of the temperature of what is going on in the city, um, what is going on in the margins of the city, what is going on uh, in the vulnerable places of the city that are oftentimes overlooked when we have big overarching conversations about New York City. And he also has a good idea of what the church is doing, what it's not doing, what it should be doing. And so um, we brought Zach on just to pick his brain and for us to know as a city image community, um, how can we be responding to coronavirus? So Zach, thank you for being on. Of course. Yeah. Glad to be a part of this. I'm really glad that you guys make space for these kind of conversations that are important and necessary. And I'm just glad to play a small part in encouraging people to think about these things. Yeah, so so Zach, um, what has been your experience um, doing what you do over the last uh, two to three weeks uh, since uh, coronavirus has struck New York and people have become more aware of the situation? Well, I mean, it's 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 difficult to kind of put into a few words because um, in the last two or three weeks, the temperature has changed in the city so drastically in terms of how the church is thinking about this. Um, but I think it was, um, if I was to put myself in a category of where I am now and then maybe backdate how things are, uh, have progressed, it's um, in talking to a friend of mine, he said, this virus has helped people understand their own vulnerabilities in ways they might not have otherwise. So even affluent 
um, people and, and churches um, that would normally find themselves just able to coast along and continue to do ministry in the midst of other realities that many in our city are facing are being confronted with their own limitations. And so I think that's starting to see itself um, present itself in, in some of the churches that might not have been thinking about it otherwise. Um, but I think um, one of the things that I've been very curious about just seeing play out is because of the segregation in our city, a lot of people in the beginning, and this is a global issue, this happened in Italy, this happened in Spain, this happened in, in a lot of parts of Europe where affluence was confronted with the issue of uh, COVID-19, is the segregation in the city meant that many people thought that this was a situation happening somewhere else. And so because of them being forced into isolation, we're thinking, okay, well, this is extended vacation for me. So I can find myself just leaving the city or going somewhere else with my kids. And what they actually did was brought the virus with them wherever they went because they were carriers. And so it's just been interesting to see again, like now the church is having to address this issue of like, what does it mean to stay and be a blessing? What does it mean to be a participant in what God is doing in their communities? because it's affecting our people personally and intimately and we have to address it because we can't just step away because wherever we go, it's going to be there. So um, it's just this really interesting situation that has played out over the last three weeks to watch people that might not have even been cognizant of how it's an issue because they weren't, um, they didn't interact with people with underlying health issues predominantly, right? Uh, young affluent churches wouldn't have um, multiple generations of, of residents of, of his family history in the community. They wouldn't have um, older residents in their church. So um, it, it's confronting a lot of churches in fresh ways to help them think about what this looks like to be a blessing and be a part of what God's doing. And so I was, I was curious as to what it looks like now um, with uh, what's going on with COVID-19. Uh, we spoke a little bit about uh, Elmhurst Hospital, which has kind of been going viral for a lack of better terms, but going viral uh, for, for, for the lack of things that they have. And, but we know that Elmhurst hospital, cause I grew up in Queens. Uh, we grew up around here. We knew that Elmhurst hospital is, is always been, uh, I mean, they're like one of the worst hospitals because they serve um, um, minority, lower uh, economic status neighborhoods. Um, so just curious to see what have you observed uh, uh, some of that imbalanced uh, uh, treatment um, during this pandemic? Man, I mean, it's again, there's so many layers to this whole thing because there was a study that was done in the, I forget which paper, but last week about how like black and brown folks are the ones who are on the front lines of all of this, right? So it's like from like food services and healthcare and home aids and like all this stuff. And it's like, people can just kind of step away and assume that like, this is going to go away and someone's going to look after it, or we can just continue to get our Grubhub and our Uber eats and all that stuff. And it's like, I'm purposely putting myself in harm's way. But then the church is obviously being affected by this because the church is losing tithe. The church is losing attendance. The church is losing folks who are, are, are losing jobs, right? So another layer is the economy, right? This whole gig economy thing that people have warned about is a, is a deck of cards is being 
massively exposed, right? Because now it's, there's no structures that support the Instacart folks, right? They don't have protections, right? They don't have danger pay. They don't have, you know, uh, paid time off. Like all, all these realities that like, and it's, and it's this gig economy that says like, hey, I want to make opportunity for everybody. And we know that like, it's black and brown folks who are given the bottom tier, who are put in the front lines, who are given these jobs to like say, hey, we're doing this, we're providing this for you. But then when the, when the epidemic comes, it's like, we'll figure it out, figure it out, you know, and, or we're just going to keep continue to doing what we're doing. So, um, that's a, like on the back end and on the healthcare side. Yeah, absolutely. You see that like, I mean, it came out today. I, I, I love, I love what Cuomo has been doing and there's been all kinds of conversation about him, like running for president and they should be knocking on his door and like letting him take over for Biden and all this stuff and whatever. But it came out in the budget that he was cutting funding to some of the, of the hospitals that are in at mo the most at-risk communities, right? So mm -hmm. like Elmerham Hospital, Brooklyn Hospital, Interfaith Community Center in, uh, in, in Brooklyn, like these, these hospitals could, could, could realistically, as a result of the new budget, like lose funding, which is, which is ridiculous. But that's because they're not in the sexy parts of the community, which are going to be servicing the people that, you know, are going to show up in the newspaper to be making sure that people talk about how people are getting help. So like, it's really, really complicated, right? Because, and, and it's interesting to see how all this stuff is playing out, but we all, we all know that this issue of inequality, right? It's just, it's real. Like it, it just presents itself. We can pretend like everything is, is flatline. Like everything works out the same for everybody until these situations present themselves. And then it's like, Oh no, this, this doesn't work the same for everybody. No, like social isolation social distancing is a privilege like mm. being able to leave the city and say this is someone else's issue that they can deal with like being able to get to say that's a privilege like that's like me being having to not take the train every day that's a privilege being able to walk to work or bike to work that's a privilege like all these things that like we just think well we, like the mayor actually saying like stop taking the subway it's like well that's fine for everyone who can take ubers or walk to work or just work from home but like it's not going to work for a lot of other people, right? So it's just wild to see how all this stuff plays out and how the church can respond in these moments is really interesting. And we're just on the, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of how the church can respond. And I've seen some beautiful things that I'm glad to, you know, bring you into, but it's complicated. I mean, it's not, it's not something you can just say like, hey, let's pray it away or let's mm. like do some fancy ministry stuff and like, you know, have a, have a, you know, a deacon fund that we can start. Like it's revealing a whole bunch of things that are broken in our, in our city. Um, so, you know, I've had the privilege of working the private sector and the public sector and seeing the mass differences in how care is given. Um, and I've definitely noticed that once um, this pandemic hit. Um, and so, like Clay was saying, you know, seeing Elmhurst Hospital um, working in the public sector, I've already known that we always worked with low, like, we worked with minimal resources all the time. That was just the case. And it was because we were servicing the impoverished communities. Um, I guess I also had a, a, a piggyback uh, question, um, not just based on healthcare, but just based on um, how you see uh, the care for, because I've seen in one of your blogs, you talked about natural housing. I'm a former resident of natural housing, Marlboro Projects, what up? <laughs> um, but, you know, um, I'm very concerned because I'm I am very far removed from um, project housing. It's been a, it's been a many, many years. Um, but just 
kind of seeing what have been the responses for the church when it comes to project housing and also how the city has been handling it with COVID. Because I find that, you know, when I live there, we, we're pretty much like our own world, you know? Um, and so how COVID is being handled, like you said, among the privileged is not how it's going to be handled in the public housing. And so how have you seen, um, I guess, it being handled in those sectors if you're if you're seeing that if you're seeing if you're in that realm oh yeah i mean again the the sad reality of why i started trellis was i mean again my goal on the on the redemptive side was to 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 invite the church into what god was already doing in communities and to recognize that we don't need to bring jesus to these communities like he's alive and well and we're just joining him with what he's already doing like these, these historic residents have been holding it down and all the things that we celebrate and know to be true and good about Brooklyn and the outer boroughs specifically are because people of color didn't leave and they strengthened and stabilized and established all the things that we take for granted being in the city now, which includes hospitals and libraries and schools and all those things, right? So um, we have to learn. So what that means for us in terms of like public housing residents, right? So public housing residents, the average tenure for a public housing resident is 24 years, right? They live, they're not going anywhere. They've been here for a long time. They've endured a number of things. Um, so they're often isolated. I've done lots of studies. Most of my work again was with public housing residents. One in 13 residents in New York city is either a section eight resident or a public housing resident. One in 13 right? So if you don't know someone who has a Section 8 voucher or doesn't live in public housing, your friendship circle is way too small, right? So it's, we're, we're living segregated and isolated. So that's a reality. Like people can just think again, like, oh, public housing, they'll figure it out. Like they'll do their own thing. And, and we, and a lot of these affluent new churches don't have residents in Section 8 in public housing resident situations. So they don't understand the implications. They don't understand how it works. Like one, two of my friends who are advocates and activists in public housing talk about social distancing like in public housing i mean you're going to get in an elevator because there's usually two or three elevators per building there's going to be 15 people in the elevator and well usually one of them is not working so it's like you're not going to walk up 14 flights of stairs with groceries when you're a grandma when your not elevator is not working like who, hmm. what, what is you know so it's like it's it's a matter of understanding like these issues are presenting themselves in ways to help us understand like this is why the numbers are are skyrocketing like we shouldn't be surprised when we're watching like public housing residents living in mold living with lead paint emphysema like all the issues that are related to being living in subhuman living and watching like the numbers start to skyrocket in older populations but in the midst of that what i also try to help people understand is in fort green specifically in brooklyn there's been a group of folks who have just on the front line said we're going to commit to caring for our residents so these are residents of public housing who are saying we're going to care for each other so they started organizations they collected donations they've checked on each other gone floor to floor they've they've worked with local businesses they've they've created all sorts of structures to make sure that support is happening for all the people in their in their community but again here's the sad reality of that they're purposely putting themselves in harm way to serve their own right so it's it's even some of the the older residents who know that they need to serve the people that are sick right and checking on them going knocking on doors refilling medication going to get the groceries they're putting themselves in harm way in multiple ways right they're going to the grocery store they're putting themselves in harm's way by standing in line right we i mean i don't know if you guys have gone to get groceries lately but it's not fun it's not fun i was you know i went to target um today and it was just like man it's just not a good time it's not a good time to get groceries so um 
again, it's the reality of what this what this whole pandemic has shown us, particularly public housing residents, in terms of the struggles that they face. Right, they're segregated, they're isolated. Um, it's um, it's crazy that they just seem so out of the conversation um, in terms of a lot of the things that the city faces. But I, I just story after story of of residences and people in the residences that are committing to caring for each other in the midst of this is heroic. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, but I think a lot of churches just are in the dark because they don't have those people in their church. They don't, they think that's someone else, right? That's it's 475,000 people that live in public housing in New York city, 475,000. It's like the 10th largest city or something in the United States by numbers. I mean, it's crazy. Mm. So, mm. you know, you've mentioned some of the ways that, coronavirus has exposed class disparities, has exposed racial disparities. You mentioned some ways that um, the church is even recognizing disparities in itself because of its own weaknesses and ignorances in the middle of the crisis. What do you think would be some good principles for churches now that they're seeing these disparities how could churches respond and engage and come alongside people in the community that are um, that are doing some of these great things to help their neighbors that you're mentioning? Yeah, I mean, it's it's again. I wish I could say it's easy, but again, everything I'm going to tell you is always complicated because it's life, right? We're dealing with humans, and the, the human experience is is complicated. So, um, I think it's forcing the church to think about how they use their resources, how they use their funding. I, I, you know, on the good side, I've seen a number of churches that are willing to start like, um, like funds to support people in their church that have lost jobs, right? I mean, the, the numbers last week, 3 million people um, signed up for unemployment in the United States last week. You know, but the previous high, it was in 1982, it was like 873,000 or something. So it's like four times, three or four times the amount of people. Um, that have applied for unemployment. So the church can like create funds for their people to, to provide um, resources and support to people that are um, going to lose their jobs, that are going to be unemployed or underemployed in the midst of this. But it, to me, it's interesting because they're losing funding, right? Tithing is going down because we're not meeting publicly. And still, even in the midst of all our technological age, most, a good percentage of tithing still comes to the physical tithe, whatever that looks like. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the church responds in terms of how they prioritize their funding even going forward. But there's some interesting ways that churches can think about that. Um, but to me, again, practically, it's about just listening to the needs and the desires and the heart cries of the community. Like, the, unfortunately, but realistically, it's been a lot of other organizations who have mobilized people in communities to help serve the community, right? It's there's all these next door groups that have started to mobilize their neighbors, invisible hands. I mean, you can look on the internet, there's just tons and tons and tons of these organizations that have mobilized volunteers. So I think the church should learn something about this. Like what does it look like for us to be participants, like, like participants of what God is doing in the community? Um, like rethinking how we organize our people. Like again, just this whole idea of like small groups are all like these isolated um like reduced to intellectual conversations often like what does it look like for us to be on mission in our communities like find ways to mobilize our people regularly like a part of our discipleship structure is actually that people need to be out doing things in the community so again some of that stuff is gonna have to play itself out slowly because social isolation is 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 obviously causing a problem with volunteerism because 
you know, we have to be careful about what we step into and putting ourselves in harm's way, putting others in harm's way. But I think how churches use their resources, just stopping for a minute and saying, okay, this has forced us to think how much of my budget, how much of our discipleship structures are actually towards the community, like for the community going into the community. Like it's, it's a very important conversation for the church to have in terms of what, how they organize themselves with their resources. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good conversation to have. I mean, my concern is that we just go back and flip a switch. And as soon as this blows over, whenever that is, that the church will go back to status quo. I hope that's not the case. I'm praying it's not the case, but I think it's an opportunity for the church to think differently about those things. So, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of organizations. I'd love for you to maybe point out a few organizations that might be good to, to kind of get plugged into, but then also some practical ways in lieu of the complexity of social distancing, but also in light of the fact that, um, you know, we're becoming, uh, much more aware of even our immediate neighbors, you know, in light of the fact that we all have a need, how could we be, um, how could we be serving as individuals in this time? Well, yeah, again, um, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again, complicated because and be, partly because if you've not been thinking this way, it's, you're going to have to take some lumps in the beginning, right? If you've not been thinking about what does this look like for the, for me personally, to be involved in what God is doing in my community in the midst of the brokenness and the things that need to be addressed and fixed and changed and improved, then I'm going to have to take my lumps because I'm going to be met with suspicion and resistance in the beginning, right? So if, as, as one of you have already said, like the church has just not been addressing it, at least the affluent church or these newer churches or out of fear, even historically churches of color have been afraid because of transitioning communities and just trying to hold on for dear life to the resources trusting and praying that gentrification is not going to take their building away and their people aren't going to move away and they're not, the people aren't going to die and they need to reach the youth, like all those things like holding on for dear life. So you're going to step in and you're going to be met with resistance and suspicion. So if, if you're committed to it, you have to be okay with the pushback that's going to happen initially. If your goal is relationship, right? If your goal is relationship, if you just want a transaction with your community there's abundance of, abundance of those things, right? So the, 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 the kingdom of God does not happen through transactions. It happens through relationships, right? And so if we're going to think about what it means for us personally and us as a church, we have to move away from saying, what sort of transactions can we produce in our community to make sure that people see that we care, right? Towards what kind of relationships can we build with our community so they can see that we care long-term? So... Those are some more difficult conversations that you have to have. So that means going into communities, right? And asking who is already doing the work and how can I support that work, right? Rather than what can we lead, right? This is the sort of the savior mentality of the church and then of the white church specifically is I need to come and fix this. No, we need to come and support what God has already been growing and doing in the community. And again, largely happening through people of color and minorities and marginalized populations, because as you all will know, that the answers to the solution, the answers to the problems in communities often lie with the people that are closest to the problem, right? Because they're the ones who are being affected by the issues until they have the best solutions. So we come in and say, how can we support what God is doing already in this community? What can we do to provide support? So, Find nonprofits that are already doing work, right? Find nonprofits that are already doing work in the community. They've been doing work for a while, 
right? A lot of them are growing up now, starting, you know, all these, and some of them would be good. Some of them will last a long time and that's fine. But look for historic organizations that have a track record of doing good in the community. Find ways to support them. Second, look for historic churches. Find historic churches in your community. They're there, right? They're the small storefront church that you're overlooking, that you think is insignificant, that has 500 members on the rolls, right? And what they need is young whippersnappers to go and check on their seniors, right? Now, you can't just go and offer to do that, right? Remember I said the resistance and the suspicion? So if a white church comes in and says, hey, brother, come check on your seniors, right? It's like, oh. Now, they do need that help. No, no doubt. They need able bodies that can go offer the services and support to those communities. But you have to do the hard work of listening and receiving and, and participating. So, again, think about the institutions that are already at work in the community. Find ways to support them. And if you inevitably see that there is a gap, if there is something that's not being met, like um, uh, re- access to internet, right? If there's, if there's pockets in the community that don't have access to the internet, how can we as a church play a supportive role in making sure that that's available, right? How can we as a church make sure that um, appropriate childcare is available, right? I mean, again, all the necessary protections related to social distancing and all those other things. But like, if there is some kind of gap in care or the need of the community, that's when the church can start to mobilize around them leading the charge in that. But often churches just go in and think, well, it's it's need, we can meet it, we can throw our people at it. And it's like, the community is like, well, we don't even need that, or we don't want that, or you're doing it wrong, right? And you can build a relationship. So um, on the ground, New York Cares, uh, this is a a specific resource, New York Cares is the largest um, volunteer mobilization organization in, in, in New York. So you can find out more information about them online, New York Cares. I mean, they're doing constant work about reorienting themselves around how to mobilize volunteers in the midst of what's going on. Um, They'd be a great place to start and just get a sense. Like you can go to their website, find neighborhood, find need, find opportunity, um, you know, morning, evening, midday, all that stuff. And just get a sense like what, what are people supporting? What are people giving themselves to? um, And how can we join in participating? What is already happening in the community? So um, that would be a good, I think some good entry point conversations to be having with people in thinking about this, because again, I just said this today, lastly, is the temptation is to run out and start doing work. That's the temptation, right? To there's needs out there. We need to start meeting them. We need to start doing something. And yes and no, right? Because there's a reason this crisis is the way it is. There are broken systems that have been shown to be broken right now. And so if we just throw all our resources at meeting the immediate need and then they dissipate, they're going to come back. They're going to pop up somewhere else. So functionally as a church, if we can find support our resources, understand what resources we have to offer, and then think long-term, what is one or two issues we want to address in our community and how can we resource our people to support that so that when this crisis pops up in another way or in a different neighborhood, we're prepared, right? We're ready to mobilize the troops and play a supportive role. We have to step back and say, what is our part in what God is doing in this rather than just throwing people out of need? That's really good. And I, I, you know, when you were saying that, I was just thinking from a, from a generational standpoint, I feel like, uh, I guess the younger generation, millennial, Gen Z, I would say has an increasing awareness of systemic issues and problems. But what I find interesting about what you said is that since these are systemic issues that are, have been going on for a really long time, 
we shouldn't be surprised that the solution lies in institutional, like reactive organizations that have been here a lot longer than us. It's almost kind of arrogant for us to think, oh, now that I understand systemic justice, I'm going to solve it by doing, by just kind of jumping in and doing this thing that no one's ever thought of before. Whereas like, you know, I, I just think it's, uh, I, you know, I'm encouraged by what you said in terms of just hopping into these, um, yeah, these, these institutions, these staples that are already in the community that have been, um, you know, dealing with these structural issues um, and responding to them on the ground yeah. um, for a really long time. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, it's the one thing, if nothing else, I don't know what generation you all are in, but I'm a Gen X, um, thoroughly Gen X. And there was one encouraging article that came out last week in, the, in BuzzFeed that if nothing else, uh, Gen Xers are gamers with social distancing because we're good with being loners. Right? <laughs> I think it's like the millennials like, ah, I got to go run, do stuff. I got to be around people. I got to yeah, do things. Yeah. Like, Gen, Gen X is yeah. the forgotten uh, generation, man. Yeah. <laughs> Gen X is the generation that got off the hook. Like it, it, it seems like yeah. every insult missed Gen X and it just landed all on millennials and then everyone after. So, you know, good for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see this right now, but Zach is brushing off his so- shoulder. on <laughs> Everything you reminded me of, I know you said you were like reading a lot of black authors, but it just reminded me of this book that I have from William Stringfellow called uh, Public, uh, Private and Public Faith. And he pretty much talks about like a lot of what you um, have personally experienced when it comes to the church um, having its presence in the world. And so, um, yeah, again, I also... Um, commend you for doing what you do and seeing that the ministry of the gospel is to be incarnational in the actual like streets you know um and so that's pretty much why you know that's why we're doing this conversation today to really get people to be aware of that and how important it is um because you know I I look at myself when I was like that eight-year-old nine-year-old in the projects and feeling like you know, bus to a, a, a predominantly white school and being, you know, feeling whole, like other, you know, pretty much feeling other. And I can only imagine a mist in this time how those kids feel right now. Um, and especially when you are now, even in a more tumultuous situation where your, your parents are now either unemployed, you know, um, have nothing to do, everybody's on top of each other. It wasn't that situation before. And so it's really, really hard. And if we could be in some way, some shape or form, uh, uh, extension of God's grace, um, that's definitely something that we should all always be at the, 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 the feet of, we should always be wanting to do that. Um, so yeah, that's all I pretty much had to add. It's beautiful. You know, just as we, as we are, you know, wrapping it up, firstly, um, how, how have you been praying during the crisis and how would you be encouraging us to be praying for our city during the crisis? Yeah, I think, I think foundationally prayer, I think again, I, I'm just having a really interesting time with, with the Lord and reading through this, the prophets through this season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last time something like this happened, I was reading through judges. I think it was when Trump came into power and I was reading through judges and I was like, oh man, very similar things going on here. Um, but I'm reading through Jeremiah and Isaiah and um, the, the premise that God enters into conversation with the Israelites through the prophets is always, it starts with repentance, right? It always has to start with repentance. So when I'm, when I'm inviting 
you know, when I'm praying, when I'm inviting the church to pray, it always is like, we're sorry we weren't better at this. We're sorry we have been complicit. We're sorry we have not stepped up to serve in ways we should have before this. We're sorry that I turned a blind eye to the needs of the people. We're sorry we've been afraid. We're sorry, but whatever. Whatever things that you feel like God is laying on your heart to first confess, that has to be the start. We have to begin with repentance. I mean, all, all revival in the Bible um, as as it means God's people returning to fidelity to Him, that's 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 revival. Um, not it's not new create new people coming to to faith in Him. That's a different thing. That's conversion explosion. But revival is people being revived back to their proper place with God, um, and that always starts with repentance. So the the hard work, right? Purposefully organizing around um, personal commitments to to repentance. And then secondarily, corporate commitments to repentance, like saying, hey, we've been complicit, we've been ignorant, we've been blind, like publicly confessing those kinds of things to, to, um, to start the conversation. And then the second thing is re- really believing that in the, in the power of God. So I just, uh, we pray, I pray over the city, like literally just saying the power of God has to meet us in, cha- in bringing change. Because again, the other part of this is as an activist and organizer, I can think that it's my work, right? What's going to, how is this city going to change? It's my work. I got to work hard. I got to work hard. I got to do my job. I got to keep hustling, keep, and that's the New York experience, right? We will get ourselves out of this, right? We will fix this. We're New Yorkers. We will fix this, right? And God's like, nah, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than you, right? So I think those two things together, right, that we, we, we begin with saying, God, I'm sorry. I need, there's things that need to change about me. There's things that need to change about us. And then, God, we, we trust you. We, we need to hear from you, right? What do we need from you to move forward? Hearing him. What do you want us to step into? What do you want us to say yes to? What do you want us to say no to? What do we need more of? God, we need you, right? Because otherwise, we're just an NGO, Right. We're just and and there's a million of those in the city that are doing, you know, at least, you know, they're doing humanitarian work, but we're supposed to do a deeper work. Right. Introducing people to the power of God um, and to a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus who experienced suffering. You know, we have we have relationship with a God who suffered. I mean, that's. That's the uniqueness of the Christian story. Right. It's we, we, we have relationship with the God who intimately suffered. Um, and so I think it's those, some of those things, our theology drives us in those things. Like God, God weeps. He weeps over all this. Like we thought about that for a minute. Like when we get bent out of shape, (laughs) I said this in a post today or yesterday, like 400 people died over the weekend from COVID 400 people. I mean, they're saying right now, Anthony Sosi is saying right now, that between 100 and 200,000 Americans will die, right, from COVID when this is all said and done. And if the numbers continue with New York, that will mean between 30 and 50,000 New Yorkers will die. Wow. Right? 30 and 50,000. So, I mean, crying out to God. I mean, if that doesn't stop you in your tracks to think about those numbers and just say, God, we just need a move of your hand. Um, I don't know what you're doing ministry for, man, but that, those are things that should just crush you. They crush me. 
last thing, you know, we'd love to just hear um, a little bit about, you know, what your organization Trellis is, is doing at this time. And if people wanted to know more about it or get plugged in somehow, um, you know, where's a good entry point? Yeah. Okay. So um, right now, immediately, our, our my organization does the most of work right now is with youth organizing. And so I've got um, about 15 youth that I work with and they're community reporters. And so what they were doing was being at community board meetings and precinct meetings and school board meetings and important public meetings, and then going to those meetings, reporting on those meetings. Um, and then we were sharing them broadly about the, sort of the youth experience of how the city is working itself out. They can't do any of that now because all those meetings are canceled. So what they're doing now is writing reports about their life. Um, as large, I mean, all of my students are students of color. Um, 85% of them are students of color in public housing. So their experience of what it means to be educated right now in the city, right, is very interesting, right, to say the least. So access to internet, access to a computer that they don't have to share with their mom or their uncle or their, another sibling, right, the ability, availability of a desk to work at, right, um, the access to a teacher, right, because not all the schools have equal access in terms of how the, the, the parents and the school and the teachers work together. Um, so they're writing reports about that experience. Um, so um, I pay the students to do these things. So their stipend for those reports, $50 for, for 250 word reports about their experiences. Um, and so we raise funds for that. Um, and then uh, I, I do just consulting. So I, I, I do a lot of um, training. I mean, again, the goal is to build collaborations to start to address the needs. Um, right now, we're sort of in a, a cyclical phase right now of having organizations re reimagine what collaboration looks like to address some needs like this. So um, my organization does training um, in connecting churches and faith institutions to larger institutions and different institutions to start to have conversations about shared resources and best practices. Um, so if, if as a church or a small group, um, whoever would like to get more engaged and involved in, in some practical ways to think about like asset mapping, understanding what's in your community, how those communities work, um, who's got access to power, what sort of resources are available and working in that community. Um, we provide training like that if, if small groups are interested. And then just on my website and Charles's website, just lots of information sharing. Like, so just um, how can you support your local school? Um, how can you support homeless um, and sheltered residents in the midst of this? And, and ju I just push out a bunch of resources on our Facebook page um, for being um, given access to a lot of the, that information from a lot of public agencies um, so that people can know about how to support, you know, like how to support your small businesses in your community, um, how to support um, families in your community, how to, you know, whatever, whatever those things are. I mean, I have a huge thing about mass incarceration too. So how to the bail reform, which we haven't even talked about because it's not related, but um, people being let out of jail, right. And how that's necessary in view of like, I mean, I think the number was by the end of next, by the end of the month, if the numbers were unchecked, everyone on Rikers Island would be affected, infected with COVID. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Would you, would you actually mind taking two minutes just to talk a little bit about the, the COVID situation with, uh, with prison? Yeah. So talk about that for two minutes. Yeah. Um, so it's a matter of understanding again, there's pieces to the puzzle that have worked themselves out. So last year, a bail reform bill came forward that allowed one, the discovery rule. So right. What was happening before was, um, 
uh, public defenders and um, and uh, the other side um, were not, attorneys were not giving were not giving access to information when people were were being held um, in a court case. So they were holding back information to the last possible minute. So it wasn't leveling the playing field in terms of who had access to what information when the court case happened. So particularly public defenders were behind the eight ball right away in terms of being able to defend people properly. So that went away. So now um, it was like a Freedom Information Act that happened. So that changed. And the second one was um, getting rid of cash bail in, in, in New York City and New York State. So ca cash bail was really just a way of punishing poor people um, and keeping them in jail. I mean, it, it's like 85% of people on Rikers Island are only there because of arraignment. They have not been convicted of a crime. They're simply waiting to be seen by a judge to find out if in fact they have broken the law. And, you know, we, it's always innocent and proved to proven guilty. At least it's supposed to be. Um, so, um, bail reform introduced the idea of getting rid of cash bail, which means these people could be released right until they were having their court case. Well, a lot of People got nervous about that, particularly in Long Island and upstate New York, and they tried to push back on that. So there was conversation about it being rolled back in some ways. Um, we haven't seen the response to how that will work itself out. But um, in relation to that, the, gov the governor and a number of organizations have committed to seeing some people released. So I think there's been in the neighborhood of about a thousand people released in the state from state and federal prisons um, in, in response to what's happening with um, jail and COVID-19 cases which is great, but if it gets rolled back, more people will wind up going back to jail, which will infect more people with COVID. Um, that, I mean, having only been to Rikers once for, for a women's um, program there, um, I mean, it's subhuman. The, the, the experience of being there, it's subhuman. So it's like basically like just, it's like a rat cage and um, with just horrible, 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 you know. Um, so, um, there's ways that we can advocate. Those are, an, it's an unseen population, right? Most of us, again, don't know someone incarcerated, don't know someone living, um, on parole, don't know someone it, having experienced mass incarceration or family, but they exist. I mean, it's, I get the number 50,000 New York, New York people in New York state are on some kind of parole. It's the numbers are boggling. Um, so it's important for us to understand how COVID relates to that stuff too, right? Like we can advocate for people that are unseen, right? Yeah. Um, so there's MDC, the Manhattan um, um, District Jail um, that's in Manhattan. There's also the Brooklyn one, and then there's a Rikers. So those are immediate ones. Um, Queens has a jail, which is going to be closed because of the closed Rikers campaign. But those people are being affected by this, and we need to advocate for them because just because the, even if they have committed a crime doesn't mean they need to be subjected to subhuman experience mm -hmm. and be needlessly um, subjected to COVID-19, right? That's that's That's... That's unjust. Yeah. Yeah. I actually want to connect you with some folks after this, if you got a second, Zach. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to have more conversations. Love to have, you know, again, my goal is to, it, at its core, Trellis exists because we believe that neighborhoods and cities work better when we work together. Mm. And so we need to be rowing in the same direction to see the kind of city, the kind of neighborhoods we want for everyone. That's good. That's good. So we will, uh, we're going to put, uh, Zach's, uh, website and how you can reach him in the show notes. Um, Zach, thank you so much for coming on to city image. Um, thank you for dropping wisdom and some real great practical application. Um, yeah, we're excited for what you're doing in the city and we're glad. Um, yeah, we're, we're glad you took the time to be with us. 
honored and super glad you guys are doing this and having these conversations and excited for what um, God is going to do in the midst of these conversations happening and the fruit that will come from it. City image.